Good morning. Good to see you this morning. We're going to be in 1 Kings 18 there where uh, Micah was just reading for us. I appreciate that, Micah. Um, Again, I'll remind you of the upcoming lectureship. If you haven't marked your calendars yet, please mark your calendars. Uh, It's it's right around the corner. We're just uh, a couple weeks away now from that event. Uh, We're going to be enjoying some lectures from... uh, Men who are in Tampa, Shane Scott and Tommy Peeler. Uh, one will be on the topic of suffering and the other on Jesus in the Old Testament. So uh, really valuable sermons, really valuable lessons for our lives. Uh, I think you'll uh, enjoy and appreciate that if you're able to make it. Uh, and invite those who are around you, who are your friends and neighbors who might be interested in these topics. These are really good topics for us to, to invite people to see Jesus throughout the Old Testament as well. Jesus is not, God is not an awful, mean God in the Old Testament and this wonderful God in the New. Jesus is actually throughout the Old Testament. Uh, And also, who doesn't want to know more about suffering? Uh, And we're going to be learning from someone who's dealt with a great deal of suffering in recent years, uh, and he should be able to help us a lot with how we deal with our suffering. So, uh, really looking forward to these uh, topics and these lectures. Please, if you can, uh, set aside the time and make sure that you're there. We've been looking at the life of Elijah, uh, and we've been following the storyline as as he's gone through uh, the drought as uh, he has commanded Uh, Ahab and told Ahab that there will be a drought in the land. There has been a drought in the land uh, for for a number of years now. As we get to chapter 18, we see it's been three years since the original proclamation that there will not be any rain in the land. And finally, the Lord tells Elijah to go to Ahab because he's going to bring rain again upon the earth. The the punishment, uh, the, the rebuke is now about to be completed. And so Ahab goes to Obadiah, as was just read, uh, speaks to him to tell him, bring Ahab here and I'll talk to him. And as you continue, the story is interesting. It kind of goes down to this little side road where it talks about Obadiah refusing, in a sense, kind of resisting this idea because he's afraid that Elijah is going to run away uh, and that Obadiah is going to be killed. And Elijah makes a promise that surely the Lord God will bring Ahab and we will we'll have a discussion today because that's what God has decided. But what's interesting also is as you read this, you kind of notice that... at first, he doesn't know for sure if it's Elijah. And you're going to see that again in, in the text we're about to read. Everybody seems like they don't quite know, is, this, is that you, Elijah? And, and that may be because he's some distance off from them. It, it says in the text that he comes near. So maybe they can't quite see him. Maybe he's being protective of himself. Or it may be that since the drought has started, he started wearing camel hair and, and his appearance has changed to some degree. We see later on that that's his description. He's a man who wears camel hair. He's been living out in the wilderness. But anyway, uh, we see Obadiah, after resisting, willing to go to Ahab and tell Ahab to come because Elijah is here. And this is the confrontation. Let's, let's pick up reading verse 17. This is the confrontation between Ahab and Elijah. It says, When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And and he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, 
and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. So here's this confrontation uh, between Ahab and Elijah. And it's interesting how we see Ahab comes onto the scene and he said, Is it you, you troubler, you troublemaker of Israel? This is Ahab's perspective of Elijah. Elijah is the cause of all of this trouble. He starts to blame Elijah for what is what has taken place these last three and a half years. I mean, Ahab himself is going out looking for grass for the cattle to eat on. It's gotten so bad that he is not just sending subjects out, he's trying to find it himself. And so he blames Elijah for doing this. Now that's interesting. Why would he blame Elijah for, for, for this. Why, why is he feeling, feeling this way? Well, back in chapter 17, verse 1, Elijah doesn't really give a reason for this. He just shows up on the scene and says, there will be no rain until I say so. And Ahab has had three and a half years to stew on the words of Elijah. And his determination is, he's a troublemaker. He's the reason why the drought has come. He has decided to offend Baal and now there is no rain in the land. You see Ahab and, and Jezebel are worshipping Baal and Asherah. And Baal is the God who brings down all this rain. So Ahab's perspective is, Elijah, you're a troublemaker. You've caused tremendous pain and suffering to your own nation. And so Ahab's been trying to kill Elijah for the last three and a half years to appease his god Baal uh, to no success. And so here he is. He says, oh, this is you. you you're the troublemaker of Israel. Elijah responds and says, no, you are the one who is the troublemaker because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord to follow Baal. It's interesting that Elijah now explains all of this suffering, all of this pain that, that they've been put through. And he says, you are the reason why all of this drought has come. You brought these covenantal curses of Deuteronomy upon yourselves by your own rebellion against the Word. Remember back in chapter 16, it clarifies they have no regard whatsoever for the Word of the Lord. They're even building Jericho uh, to, the, to the man's... Death, to the death of the man's children as the curse was promised in the Word of the Lord. So Elijah says, here's what we're going to do. Uh, I want you to go and get all Israel and bring them to Mount Carmel and also 400 of the prophets of Baal who eat at Jezebel's table, 450 of the prophets of Baal and 400 of the prophets of Asherah who all eat at Jezebel's table. I want you to bring, us, bring them all together at Ahab and we're going to decide who it is who is the troubler of all Israel. Uh, and so... I'm sorry, I got behind here. Uh, Ahab is the one who's responsible, but Elijah is going to call for this contest to clarify everything, to make it very clear in the mind of everyone whose fault it actually is. So here we have it. There's going to be a great... Uh, a fight that's about to happen. This is a blockbuster fight, okay? Everybody wants to see this. Nothing like this has been seen since David and Goliath, okay? Nobody's seen any kind of fight like what's about to take place. Here's on one side you have 850 prophets of Baal and Asherah and, and their God. And then on the other side you have Elijah and the Lord. 
or God, Yahweh. Uh, and all of Israel is gathered around to watch this, to find out who is it that's responsible for this drought. You can you imagine everybody's got stakes in this. Everybody wants to know who's the troublemaker, who's the reason that's behind this tremendous suffering that we've endured and so that we can put them to death and, and get this pain and suffering over with. Well, Elijah uh, lays out the rules for the fight in verse 21. He says, uh, how, how long, he's speaking to the people, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal, then follow Him. And the people did not answer Him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no, fi- and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, And I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, He is God. And all the people answered, It is well spoken. So here we see that Elijah is extremely outnumbered in this fight. Okay, 450 to 1. And he's not only outnumbered, but he's saying, You guys can go first. I'm going to let you select whichever of these two bulls you want. And you lay it, you build your altar to worship, and you, you kill the bull, and you lay it on the altar, and don't put any fire to it. And if your God is the God, then let Him bring down the fire. And then we will all worship Him. But if, if my God brings down the fire, then we will all worship the Lord my God. It's interesting that this is the way things are going to be settled. And and everybody agrees. Everybody says, okay, yeah, let's see whose God can do anything here. And Elijah says, okay, I'm going to let you guys go first. And this this is a sudden death battle, okay? If their gods bring down fire, then the battle's over. And then Elijah lost. And he lets them go first. He's outnumbered. He lets them go first. Surely with 450 prophets, somebody can provoke this great god Baal to bring down fire on this sacrifice. So they start crying out. And they cry out and they cry out for hours. And they're dancing and they're doing everything they know to provoke their god to, to act. Saying, oh Baal, answer us. And it goes on till noon. And eventually, Elijah says in verse 27, Cry aloud, for He is a God. Either He is musing, or He is relieving Himself, or He is on a journey, or perhaps He's asleep and must be awakened. <laughs> this is probably one of the funniest texts in Scripture. Um, Cry louder, he says. He must not hear you. He must be asleep. He must be on vacation. He must be on a journey. He must be relieving himself. (laughs) He He can't hear you right now. He's a little busy. They hear this and they respond by crying louder. 
But they don't just cry louder. They begin to cut themselves. The scene becomes graphic. They start letting blood flow out of them. They're like punishing themselves because their God doesn't listen to their prayer. He doesn't do anything that they ask Him to do. And so they're doing everything they can think of to make Him respond the way that they want Him to respond. But there's nothing. There's no voice. There's no fire. Nothing. Silence. And then the time comes for Elijah. And read with me what happens in verse 36. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that You are God in Israel, and that I am Your servant, and and that I have done all these things at Your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that You, O Lord, are God, and that You have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. By the way, he had 12 pitchers of water poured on the sacrifice before doing this. And it licked up all the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let no one of them escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kidron and slaughtered them there. Wow. After this, Elijah prays to God for rain, and it rains. You see how God is responding to this prayer battle of Elijah's. That Elijah is calling out to God in prayer and that God is the one who is able to respond. This is just a big prayer battle. That's all this is. It's it's a battle of whose God listens to the prayers of His subjects. You see, all the people who are uh, there, who are witnessing all this, whenever they're asked... How long will you uh, will you go on the fence? How long will you uh, be limping between two different decisions? How long will you be neutral in your uh, service, in your devotion? He wants them to think about that. And they do. And they're they're quiet. They have nothing to say because they're they're not sure. Well, who's really God? Who really answers our prayers? Who really listens to our prayers? They've gotten confused about why they're blessed or why they're cursed. They don't know what what the right reason is. There's all these gods out there and we don't know which one is really able to do anything. Does this sound familiar to us? I want to submit to you that we actually live in a society that's much like Israel. That if we were to ask the people around us, who is God? That they would say, well, which one? 
You know, there's many of them out there. You know, and and there's this picture in our society, this desire to say that 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 there's not one specific way, or that there's not one specific God that you worship God that you want to worship, and I'll worship the God that I want to worship, and that's okay, and you can do what you want to do, and I'll do what I want to do, and everything will be fine. And they're they're neutral, they're on the fence, they're not going to say for sure this one is God and this one is not. They're apprehensive and unwilling to do that. But here's Elijah calling for these people to make a decision, to choose one or the other. And we need to do the same thing. We need to choose. We need to determine which one is God. Uh, Because if we're unwilling to choose, if we're just going to sit on the fence and say, oh yeah, you worship the way you want to worship and that's true, and I'm going to worship the way that I want to worship and that's true, and then they're going to worship this way and that's true... We're being delusional. Because things that are contradictory to one another cannot all be true. It can't be. It's not possible. Uh, If my religion says that there is no other religion that is true, (laughs) then I've just broken your whole system that all religions are true. (laughs) Because it just can't work. It's relativism. That word relativism is very much what we see in society as people are just unwilling to commit to one religion or another or to condemn one religion or, or say that one religion is true or right. It's all just a form of relativism. To say that uh, we, you know, all of them are okay is ridiculous. And what it ultimately is is laziness. We're not willing to do the work that's required to determine which one is true and which one is false. And if we say that all of them are true, we're actually being disrespectful. And we're being emotionally violent toward those who are devoted to their religion and their their understanding of truth. So this this idea of being neutral is being called to the to the floor in this event that that you can't be neutral. You can't just say everybody is good, everybody's fine. You worship the way you want to worship and I'll worship the way I want to worship. That that's not okay. But What's interesting here is as we think about this idea, they're worshiping Baal and trying to worship Yahweh as well. Why do they do that? You know, just think about that. What is going on in their society that has led to this apostasy, that has led to them falling away and pursuing something other than God? Why did they do that? What's going on here that they're, that they're now on this fence and unable to decide? Well, what does the word Baal mean? And why, why are they worshiping Baal? Baal is this idea of a spiritual Lord. If you were to break down the word of Baal and, and go to the original use, the word Baal just simply means spiritual Lord. They actually had a lot of Baals. You kind of see Baal throughout Scripture. There was a Baal for rain, which is the Baal that's being discussed here. There's a Baal for uh, partying. There's a Baal for... Um, uh, war, and that's the Asherah kind of Baal. There's all different kinds of Baal that serve different purposes. Uh, and, and these Baals are their lords. They're the one who they worship and they try to serve in order to get something that they want. Something that they feel like God is not providing them. And in this case, 
they're serving the God of rain because they want more wealth. That's what Jezebel is going to bring into this kingdom by bringing in all these prophets and, and, and promoting this worship. They're going to have a, a ton of rain and they're going to have a ton of crops and everything's going to be great and wonderful in their society. We look at that and we kind of snicker, right? How primitive. You know? They got these objects that they're worshiping. They've got these statues and stuff and they're bowing down to these things. How primitive are they? You know, we would never do anything like that. We would never make anything our spiritual Lord. Would we? Think about, for a minute, how we pray. Whenever we pray, what are we really praying for? And how do we feel about the things that we're praying for? I mean, we, we pray and sometimes we pray and we're pouring everything out to God. We want something really, really bad. Right? And we're giving it our everything. And we're praying to God. We're confessing our sins. We're, we're remembering all the promises God has made to us. We're even thanking Him ahead of time because we've got so much faith that He's going to give us what it is that we really want when we pray. And we do this little dance for God. We do everything in the rule book and say, you know, in the name of Jesus I pray. And we, we rely and we, we expect God to give us what we want. But then he doesn't answer us. What's the matter? Is he is he distracted? Is he asleep? Is he is he just uh, you know off doing his own thing? Does he not care about us? What's going on? We have to have this, whatever it is. We have to have it. We have to have good health. We have to. We have to have a marriage partner. We have to. We have to have children. We have to have this. We have to have success in our jobs. We're pouring out our hearts. We have to have this. If I don't have this, my life is over. It is my spiritual Lord. It is what I'm depending on for significance, for life. In this case, they had to have wealth. They had to have rain. They had to have comfort. They had to have it. And they're praying for it with all their hearts. And then what happens when we don't get the answer to our prayers? We follow all the rules, right? We, we, we do what we're supposed to do to have our spouse and to, to, to have a good relationship with our spouse. We do what we're supposed to do to raise our children, to make them upstanding citizens and to make them faithful. And then they, everything that we do falls apart. We do what we do to have success in our job and it just doesn't work out. Everything that we pray for doesn't happen. And so what do we do? Well, we've been dancing for our God and He hasn't hurt us. So maybe we start hurting ourselves. Maybe we start destroying ourselves. We start destroying our spouse. We start destroying our kids. We start destroying our own lives. We cut ourselves. Who does that sound like? Sounds like the Baal worshippers, doesn't it? You see, we've made something that's a good thing the ultimate thing. We've made it the ultimate thing. And when we pray to God, we have to be very careful of this. That we've not made the good things in this life 
the ultimate things to us. Because whether He gives them to us or not, He is still God. He is still in control. And we can still trust Him to provide for those who love Him what they ultimately need. We have to see that we've made up bales in our lives. And we've all done it and we continually do it. And we just have to give those things up. Because whether my spouse obeys the Gospel or not, whether my children live beyond my life or not, or whether they uh, are faithful or not, I'm still going to trust the one true God who is able to answer my prayers, able to open up their hearts, able to, to, to give me comfort and strength in all of my struggles. I'm still going to worship Him no matter what. And that's what these people are struggling with. They come to this determination though as, as God sends out His fire upon this sacrifice. Notice, the fire does not come down upon the people. After all their idolatrous worship, the fire comes down on this sacrifice and God accepts the sacrifice of a bull and He, he forgives and He allows the people to have rain again. He is willing to allow the people to continue and He's hoping that their hearts have been turned back to Him. That seems to be the picture and the goal of Elijah. And that seems to be what happens in this story. Now later on, they're going to fall away, but at this time, they say the Lord, He is God. And they recognize it's Him who has done this and that He is the one who is powerful enough to give the drought, to rebuke us, to bring us back to His Word, to do what we ought to do. And so now they're going to turn their hearts to Him and they put to death the false prophets and they begin to worship the God of Israel. Isn't this interesting that, that God does this in the Old Testament? Because He does the same thing in the New Testament, right? <laughs> he provides for us a sacrifice that takes away the punishment that we deserve. It's not the blood of the worshipers that allows for the forgiveness of the sins, but it's the blood of the sacrifice. And the sacrifice that He gives to us is the ultimate sacrifice for our sins that removes all of the sins that we've committed in the past and all of the sins that we'll commit in the future. And that ultimate sacrifice is Jesus. God is now expecting those who accept the sacrifice to have turned their hearts to Him and to now pursue Him instead of all the Baals that they've worshipped in the past. We don't need a wife. We don't need a husband. We don't need children or successful careers or good health or even freedom <laughs> to be content and to be blessed in this life. We have everything we need in this sacrifice and in the love and the care of our Creator. That's the picture of this story. It's an amazing story. And we look at this story and we're blown away by how God is just willing to show everyone once and for all that He is the true God and that all of these bales, all of these things people are trusting in can do nothing. So how do we apply this? Well, we need to think about what we're, what we're really serving as we're praying to God. Who are we really focused on? 
Are we praying a prayer, asking God to give us something, because that's what we really worship? That's something that's really deep, that we really need to think hard about. How do we view those things that are going on in our lives? How do we view our relationships? How do we view our lives? Is all of that secondary to God? God is the one ultimate that we are to have more than anything else. We've been saying throughout this that uh, what James 5.17 really helps us to get the right lens on Elijah, that helps us to understand Elijah as we study through this story, that he was a man like us, but that he prayed to God fervently and God answered his prayer. God listened to him and gave him what he desired most. As we study this, you know, we're tempted to, to start understanding why God does not answer our prayers. And a lot of times, you know, it is the case that we're worshiping other things. And that's the reason why He's not answering our prayers. But notice what Elijah was worshiping. Notice the mindset of Elijah throughout all of this. Elijah is a man who is focused on the Lord. He's focused on the glory of God. He's been jealous for the Lord. And he wants all the people's hearts to turn back to God, to worship Him and to serve Him faithfully. Elijah is a single-minded man. And that's very fascinating that James uses Elijah in his letter. Because we just studied his letter last year. One of the things we saw is James speaks over and over against the idea of being double-minded. Being double-minded. And, and that's exactly what these people are. Is they're on the fence trying to determine, is Baal a God? Is God? Is the Lord a God? What, who should we worship? They're double-minded. And James puts it in a way in chapter 4 that really hits home with this whole story. So let's look at this. Uh, James chapter 4, I'm going to read the first seven verses. He says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says, He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us. But He gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. The picture here in this, in this text is the same thing that we see in Elijah. We have passions at war within us. We're desiring other things as well as desiring God. And then we're not giving what we're asking for and we're hurting those around us. And we're hurting ourselves. 
But God is jealously yearning for our hearts. He wants us to be single-minded. He wants us to put away all the idols. We don't bow down and worship the little statues and things like that, but we desire and we have passions for things that are of this world and He wants us to lay those things down, to let them go, and to pursue God first and foremost in our lives. The question is, how long will we straddle the fence if that's what we're doing? If if we're pursuing these other things as though they are the God that we worship, that we need for fulfillment, for satisfaction, for pleasure, how long will we straddle the fence? We need to choose who we are going to serve. And Elijah clearly points out to us, the Lord, He is God. Baal is not going to bring fire down on that sacrifice. Baal is not going to provide you a sacrifice for the forgiveness of your sins. Baal is not going to come down to this earth and take on human form and live like we lived and suffer a cruel death on behalf of our sins. Nor will our wives, our children, our jobs, our houses, our cars, or any of the other temporary things that we pursue to give us satisfaction eternally. But God can. And God does provide that for us. God is able to save. He is able to do everything that He has promised us He will do throughout the Scriptures. And He asks for us to stop pursuing the gods of beauty, success, security, fulfillment, happiness, whatever it is, and to start pursuing Him with all of our heart. And if we'll give up on our stubborn pride, and if we'll submit to Him, He gives grace to those who are humble. He opposes the proud, but He gives grace to those who are humble. So we have to decide, are we going to be proud? Or are we going to be humble? Are we going to worship the Lord alone, who is God? Or are we going to worship this world? I hope that this helps you in your prayer life. I think it's helped me immensely in mine. uh, And I hope that it helps you also in your walk with God. If anybody here this morning has not obeyed the Gospel and put on Christ, uh, God provides that sacrifice free of charge for you. And you can accept Him. Uh, You can put on Christ by confessing your faith in Him, repenting of your sins, and being washed in the waters of baptism. All those sins will be washed away and you will be freed from your sins to worship Him and to serve Him without fear, without guilt or shame as Andrew pointed out in the Lord's Supper. Uh, If anybody here needs to obey the call, please come forward as we stand and as we sing.